It is good to see you guys. Um, it feels like it's been forever since I've had the last opportunity to preach to you. It was a good break. I enjoyed Christmas break. I enjoyed getting to hear from uh, Ron and Ken over these past couple weeks. Uh, but I am glad to uh, just be back up here and have the opportunity to bring God's word to you guys. It's one of the things that um, I love doing more than almost anything else in life. So, um, yeah, I'm just thankful for this opportunity. I actually wanted to start off with some prayer and invite God to uh, come in and speak to us this morning. Uh, Lord, we love you. Uh, we thank you so much for who you are. And God, we just ask that um, your spirit would be here in this room this morning. God, we ask that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to receive um, just the message I'm about to give today. God, I pray that it would be uh, from you. God, I especially pray that uh, the scripture we read this morning uh, would speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray that uh, you would encourage us and that you would challenge us. Um, God, help us to learn more of just what it looks like to follow you. Lord, I ask that you would help us uh, to be people that give a wholehearted obedience to you, Lord, and that love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, we love you so much. We thank you for who you are, and we ask this in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right, uh, so if you guys don't know me, I know some of you may have been away on co-op for a while, or maybe you're checking us out for the first time. <laughs> My name is Grant. I am the pastor of H2O Church, and uh, I actually have a confession to make to you uh, as your pastor, and that is that I struggle uh, with complete obedience to the Lord. Um, there are parts of my life that I want to submit to him, and then there are other parts that I kind of feel like I want to keep back as my own. And say, like, God, you, you know, you can have this part of my life over here, but, but don't start asking me to do something over in this area. Don't start challenging me over here. There are times uh, that it seems easy for me to want to study God's word and to want to get to know him and to want to change my life in accordance with that. And then there are other times where God starts to challenge me on something, and I'm like, no, that's not really a place that I want to go. And I think that in those times, a lot of the time I'll say, like, well, look at all these other things that I'm doing. Like, I'm being obedient in all of these other areas. Isn't that good enough? But God still gets at it. He still says, no, like, I want obedience in every area of your life. I want to give you a few examples of how I've struggled with this. Um, over my time being a Christian, the first was uh, in the area of evangelism. I, I was a church kid. I grew up with um, Christian parents, loved going to church, loved uh, reading Bible stories. I'd play, do Bible stories with my Legos, all that kind of stuff. So I was a good church kid. I was obedient to my parents. As a matter of fact, you can ask my parents straight up. They'll tell you I was the easiest of the three boys to raise, no doubt about it. Um, you know, whatever. That was just, just kind of me. And then as I got into middle school, I uh, really started to commit myself to follow Jesus seriously. That's when I really started getting into reading his word. And uh, I love that. God did a ton in my life through it. Um, but one of the things that started to happen was I realized that part of the life of a Christian is sharing your faith with others. And in the church I grew up in, it was a great church in a lot of ways. Um, they loved to serve others. You know, I would go on mission trips, I'd serve at soup kitchens, I would rake leaves for old ladies, all this kind of stuff. But very rarely did I have any examples of people who were really willing uh, to sacrifice to share Jesus with others. I didn't have any examples of that, and honestly, I was scared to death uh, to actually try to share Jesus with somebody else, to tell them, hey, like, you have a broken relationship with God, like you're a sinner that's separated from him, but God loves you and wants to fix that, and he's given Jesus Christ to be, to be able to do that. You can put your faith in him, 
and have that relationship restored. See, that was an area that I really didn't want to go. But as I continued reading the Bible, I, I couldn't help but see, like, man, this is just, this is a part of the Christian life. You know, I, I can't just choose to continue to be disobedient in this area. And I think that the reason I was scared was because uh, with all these other things I did, you know, whether it was serving the needy or uh, going to church or whatever, those were all things that kind of anybody could respect on some level. They weren't really, um, I wasn't putting myself out there. There wasn't really any danger in it of me losing anything. But when it came to, oh my goodness, like you want me to go into my high school and like share Jesus, like people are going to think I'm weird. Like I might not be seen as being cool anymore. Like, and yeah, I was considered cool. Um, but <laughs> no, like th- there's, there's problems that, that can arise from that. Um, and once again, it'd be one of those things where it's like, okay, but God, look at all these other things I'm doing. I'm such a good church kid. People in my church look up to me, all this kind of stuff. But I was holding back obedience in this area of my life. And maybe some of you um, can relate to that as well. Now, over time, God's conv- continued to push me in this. And eventually, it just got to the point where I was like, I'm just, I'm going to be okay with being a Jesus freak. Like I had the DC Talk song, Jesus Freak, that helped me. It's like, whatever, I'm just going to, that's who I am. Like I'm not going to try and hide this anymore. Um, and so God continues to challenge me in this area. Um, but it's been cool to see what he's done in my life and in the lives of others just as I've started to give more and more obedience to him there. Another area that I was disobedient in for a long time uh, was just with baptism. Um, as I, I, I grew up in a church that baptized infants. I was baptized as an infant. Um, but as I started reading the scripture more, I started to realize, like, man, the only real examples that we get of baptism come from people that have actually made confessions of faith to follow Jesus. And I realized, like, man, I, I haven't done, like, I made a confession of faith to follow Jesus, but I haven't been obedient in baptism. Now, once again, baptism, it's not some magical thing. It's not something that saves you. You're saved by your faith in Jesus Christ. But it is a step of obedience that God expects Christians to take when they commit to following him. And so he started convicting me about this for years as I was in high school, and I just didn't want to do it. My pride got in the way. I didn't want people to think I was a baby Christian or whatever else. There was just different things that I was scared of. And so I just continued to resist the Lord, even though he was telling me, Grant, I want you to be obedient in this area. And finally, it took me until my freshman year of college, after years of saying no to God in this, to finally be like, okay, God, yes, you're right. Like, I'm willing to do this. And he won another victory in uh, trying to get me to be obedient to him. Um, Last example I'll give you. Um, I did this actually with stealing for a long time. Now, you might be thinking, oh, my goodness, like, my pastor's a thief. Uh, don't worry, you don't have to hide your valuables if I come over to your house. Um, I wasn't stealing, and a lot what, what, what people would think I was doing, a lot of people wouldn't classify it as stealing, but I became convicted that it was. See, what I was doing, a lot of people, I guess the proper name for it would be file sharing. Um, when I was in middle school, high school, see, we didn't have Spotify, we didn't have, like, even YouTube was kind of getting started, whatever, like, if you wanted to listen to music that you didn't own, you had to listen to the radio, which was never going to play what you wanted to hear, or you had to go buy a bunch of CDs, which, who has money to do that? So then there was this really convenient thing, because the internet was still, like, I mean, it had been around for a while, but it was still growing a lot. And people got this idea, like, well, what if I just took the MP3 file and uh, put it online, and everybody else can download it, even though they didn't buy it? And uh, this thing called Napster, if any of you have heard of that before? Yeah, I used Napster. Um, so I, I was doing that kind of stuff, and then eventually through a conversation with a couple mentors in my church, they really helped me to realize that honestly what I was doing was stealing. 
Uh, it was an ethical gray area. A lot of those companies that were doing that stuff have run into copyright issues and they're not allowed to do it anymore. But at the time, the law didn't really know how to handle this kind of thing. But I had come to the conviction that it was stealing, um, that the, these artists had made this music, they had the, the copyrights to it, it was their livelihood to sell it, and yet I was taking it without paying for it. And so um, the Lord started to convict me on that, and don't worry, but the point of my sermon this morning is not to get you to stop file sharing if you do that. I think you should, uh, but don't tune me out if you disagree with me on whether or not file sharing is stealing. Uh, the point is, I came to the conviction that it was, and still I was resistant to, to do that. I kept on doing it for a while, and eventually it was another one of those things where God just had to break through my walls and, and get me to stop, and I don't file share anymore. Um, and praise the Lord, we have Spotify and that kind of stuff now, so it's not even a temptation. But, um, yeah, see, the Lord provides. Now, you, you get the picture by now. Um, throughout my life, I have had all these different areas where God will start to convict me on something. He'll start to call me to obedience in a certain area, but I don't really want to give that up. And I would bet that I'm not the only person in the room that struggles with that. As a matter of fact, I would bet that probably all of us, if you're trying to follow Jesus, you can relate to something I said here. Whether it's in one of those areas or something else, you can relate to the idea of not really wanting to give 100% wholehearted, complete obedience to God in every area of your life. You know, some of the ones that, that I know most of us struggle with, I mean, how about the area of lust? Like, how much are we really being obedient to God in, in that area? Maybe you're doing a good job not sleeping with your girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever outside of marriage, but are you looking at pornography? Even if you're not looking at pornography, what, what kind of thoughts are you allowing yourself to entertain about those that you're attracted to? How about in the area of pride? How much glory do you seek for God versus seeking for yourself? You know, if you think about it, the, the Apostle Paul tells us that everything that we, should, that we do should be for the glory of God. I find myself wanting to split time between trying to build up my own name and build up God's name. Um, how about the area of worry? We just uh, finished the Sermon on the Mount last semester, and uh, Jesus told us, do not worry. I mean, come on, right? Like, most of us worry probably all the time. How obedient are we being in the area of actually trusting God uh, to be the one that will provide for us? How about in the area of making disciples? Jesus' final commission uh, was to go and make disciples and to be witnesses. Are we being fully obedient in that area? Maybe we're kind of giving some of our energy to that, but do we really understand that this is the mission that God's given us? It is first to love him, but also second to love others. And that includes making disciples and teaching them to follow him. So... Uh, I think that I struggle with this. I think that you struggle with this. And the reality is anyone who's ever wanted to be a faithful follower of the Lord has struggled with this as well. We see it all throughout the Bible. And we're actually going to go Old Testament today. By the way, we're going to be kicking off a series today uh, in the book of Judges. So some of you might be kind of scared to go into Old Testament waters. I, I think it's going to be great. I'm excited for it. I, this stuff happened thousands of years ago. Um, but I Really, every time I read the book of Judges, I can't help but think that their society mirrors ours in so many ways, even though we're separated by a few millennia. Um, now, if you are scared about kind of going through a series, we're going to be doing this up until spring break, uh, that's in the Old Testament, 
There's a few things I want to preface. Um, first is that you need to have a proper understanding of the covenant that God made with Israel and then the covenant that he's made with us as Christians. We have our Bible divided up into Old Testament and New Testament. Testament is just another word for covenant. Um, so there's, we still look at the Old Testament as Christians. There's still a ton for us to learn from it, but we interact with it in a slightly different way than the Israelites did, okay? It's not our law. It's not the covenant that God has made with us, but there's still a ton for us to learn from it. I don't have time to get into all that today, but I preached a sermon on this last semester called The Two Covenants. So if you have questions about this, you can go on our website, look up that sermon, and that should help you understand a little bit of the difference of how Christians interact with some of God's law versus the way that Israelites did. But also, uh, you need to have a proper understanding of biblical genres. So what we're going to be reading in Judges is something that we call historical narrative, which basically just means it's a story of something that happened in history. Um, it doesn't necessarily always tell us whether what happens in these stories is good or bad, okay? And if you read the book of Judges, we're not going to cover every verse of it, uh, but there's a lot of messed up stuff that happens in Judges. Uh, and some of these things are being done by people that we, that are like leading Israel, people that God seems to bless, yet they do these like really terrible and awful things. Um, we, just because they did that doesn't mean the Bible is endorsing it, okay? We, you have to look at some of the other instructional parts of the Bible to decide whether what happened was good or bad. It's just telling a story. It doesn't always give us as much guidance as we'd like. If you want to learn more about how to interpret uh, different biblical genres, then come to Deeper Waters tonight, uh, because I'm going to be going over all the different biblical genres over the next six weeks and uh, giving keys for interpreting them. Okay, um, so... As we look at Israel and the struggles that they had with following the Lord thousands of years ago, I believe that we're going to gain a better understanding of how to follow the Lord closely today. And that's why we've titled this series, Judges, Stories from Yesterday, Lessons for Today. Um, now, for us to understand the book of Judges, I need to bring you up with a little bit of historical context. Um, the stories that were taking place are going to be, uh, the stories we're reading are going to be taking place a few decades after Israel had entered into the promised land. And when I say promised land, that refers to a land that God had promised their ancestor Abraham. Hundreds of years back, he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of a great nation. You're going to have a bunch of descendants, and I'm going to bring them back to this land, actually, where I'm speaking to you right now. But they're going to have to go some, through some other stuff before that. But eventually, I'm going to bring them back here. And so that's why we call it the promised land. Now, the people and judges were actually living in a time of great prosperity compared to what their ancestors had had to deal with. Uh, their immediate uh, ancestors, their fathers, grandfathers, those guys had been wandering around in the desert for 40 years, okay? Does any, do any of you guys ever been to a desert? Do, people, do you guys like hanging out in deserts, okay? If you do, you probably only like it because you have running water, uh, but I think wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years... I mean, there wouldn't even, there'd be no cell phone service out there or anything. It would not have been pleasant, okay? Um, so that's, that's what their immediate ancestors were dealing with. Before that, uh, it was even worse, though, because they were slaves in Egypt for a couple hundred years. Um, so you kind of just go back and you look at, man, okay, it sucks to be wandering in the desert, but it's even worse to be a slave. That's what the Israelites have been going through for a few hundred years before we get to the time of Judges. Now, um, the, the people that God had brought up out of Egypt to, to get them to this point, God did so through this uh, miraculous, the miraculous events, the 10 plagues. If you've ever seen like the Moses movie or whatever, you probably have some familiarity, familiarity with that, like the rivers turning to blood and locusts and all that kind of stuff. God brings the, the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. 
They wander around in the desert for 40 years. And you might be thinking, why is it that they were wandering in the desert for 40 years? Is God, like, really bad with directions? Like, does he need a GPS? Like, what is going on? With why? Because, like, if you look at this on a map, the, the journey from Egypt to Israel, it should have only taken about two weeks, max. Um, like, how did two weeks turn into 40 years? Um, Okay, well, this is why that happened. Basically, despite the fact that God had done all of these amazing things, he, he brought them out of Egypt with these 10 plagues, he parted the Red Sea, and as they were going around in the desert, he literally fed them with bread coming down out of heaven, that we call manna. Like, it's, it's crazy, right? God had done all these amazing things. Yet, uh, when he's like, okay, here's the land that you're going to take, they went and spied it out, and they got freaked out by how big and strong the people were there. Um, and they're like, my goodness, like, there's no way that we can take this. And they somehow, I guess, forgot that God had just delivered them from a really powerful nation in Egypt and part of the sea and that kind of stuff. But regardless, they got really scared about being able to go into this land. And so God got angry with them for their lack of faith. And he said, you know what? I'm going to make you guys continue to wander around out here until this faithless generation that didn't believe that I would give them the land dies out. So they wandered for 40 years, and everyone that was over 20 years old that didn't believe ended up dying out in the desert. And finally, they get to go in the promised land. Now, Moses actually didn't even get to enter himself, but he did give some final instructions to Israel before they got ready to go in. And that's going to set us up well for Judges. So I actually want to read a couple things out of the book of Deuteronomy. It's the last book of Moses. And uh, it's the last book before the Israelites enter into the promised land. There's a few things that he says to them. And this is one of them. Do not say in your heart, when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, that's the nations that are there right now, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess their land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Know then, it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people." Okay, so we need to look at a few things there. First off, uh, God makes it abundantly clear, he says it three times in that passage we just read, that he is not bringing Israel into this land because they are righteous. That is an important thing for us to understand because I think a lot of the time um, when something good happens to us, we think that we've earned it. You know, it's like, oh, God must be like pleased with my righteousness or something like that, so he's going to give me that. And he knew Israel might start to get that kind of attitude. So he made it abundantly clear, hey, just because I'm bringing you guys into this, this great land here, it's not because you've earned it, okay? It's not because you've been righteous. Matter of fact, like, you're a stubborn people. You've, you've consistently uh, disobeyed me. You haven't believed me, all this kind of stuff, but God is still faithful, right? And... Um, as Christians, I think we can get this same way. I think that sometimes we almost view heaven as something that we're entitled to. Like, oh yeah, like everybody should just go to heaven as long as you're not like Hitler or something or Bin Laden. Like, you, yeah, why not, right? Like we, we kind of go from this default mentality that heaven is something that we deserve. And usually we think that because we think that we're righteous people. And so I, when I look at myself, when I look at most, of the, most Christians, I think that a lot of time we operate exactly the way that Israel did, and God was warning them, don't think that, you're, that this is happening because of your righteousness. Now, 
He does give two reasons for why they are getting to go in, which are, one is to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to their fathers. I told you about that already, why this is called the promised land. He says that the second is because the current inhabitants were wicked, okay? So the Canaanites, which are the people that were living in this land, were receiving judgment because of their wickedness. Now, this is really hard for us when we see God command the nation to go in and wipe people out. I know that's like, of all the things in the Bible, that's one of the things that I usually struggle with the most is like, my goodness, like, why did God tell Israel to go in and just like kill all these people? It's hard for us, right? It's really, really difficult. But we must understand it in light of God's perfect judgment. I think too often we probably like to forget the side that, that God is a just God, that he does execute just, justice, that he, he does demand righteousness, and that eventually judgment does come. Okay, This happened for Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, when eventually their wickedness got to the point that the Lord decided he was going to destroy those cities by fire and brimstone. What happened with the, the people of Canaan, their wickedness had gotten to the point that the Lord decided he was going to judge them, not with fire and brimstone, but with the sword of Israel. Okay, And if you don't like the fact that God judges, remember, he hasn't, he's still the same God. Okay, If you read the book of Revelation, there is a judgment that is coming for this earth as well. So the fact that the judgment for the Canaanites came early, you know, so to speak, that it came at the hand of, of Israel should not really shock us. We may not like it, but at the same time, remember, God is going to judge this earth. And we don't know when his patience is going to run out. We know that he's extremely patient. We know that he's given them a lot of time. We know that he's actually holding off his judgment of the earth right now so that more would come to repentance, but the fact that it is, we do serve a good and righteous God who will judge justly. And that's what we generally want, isn't it? Like, don't you want judges that execute justice? You just don't like it when you're the one that's on the guilty side of that. Okay? Well, well here's the thing. God doesn't want you to be on the guilty side of that. And that's why he's provided Jesus Christ as a sacrifice. And he said, you know what? My judgment is coming. So you can either have my judgment and my wrath poured out upon you, which is what the Canaanites received here for their wickedness, which is what many will receive on Judgment Day, or you, my wrath and my judgment can be poured out on Jesus, the worthy substitute that I have offered in your place. We have an awesome God that's provided that. So with, with that being said, I think that will help us understand that, that difficult aspect of the act of why is it that God told them to wipe out these nations? Because we're going to see exactly what he said here. How is it that they're supposed to come in the promised land? It's from Deuteronomy chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations, seven nation army, um, greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. This is talking about marriage. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their asherim and burn their graven images with fire. 
For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So as we're talking about, Israel was supposed to utterly destroy these inhabiting nations that were in this land that God was bringing them into. And, and there were two reasons for that. One was because Israel was being used as an instrument of God's judgment. We already talked about that. Two was because they would cause major problems if Israel allowed them to survive. It talks about how they would turn their hearts, the hearts of Israel away from the Lord and turn them towards idolatry. Um, and, and by the way, these idolatrous gods that, that Israel would be turned away to worship are, are very terrible gods, okay? Uh, one, of the, one of the gods was Molech, who actually was worshipped through child sacrifice. So these are, these are not gods that you want to have um, your people turning away and going into idolatry after. You see, sometimes we don't see the full picture when God gives us a commandment that we don't understand. I, I'll be honest, I would not have wanted to be an Israelite. Um, going into the promised land and being said, hey, I want you to kill all these people. That's, that doesn't sound like a fun assignment to me. But we don't know always why God says everything that he says to do. And I, I would say that, honestly, there's a good chance that there would have been less killing in the long run if they'd just been faithful in doing what God told them to do in the first place. Because the disobedience and the idolatry that Israel would fall into due to the corrupting influence of these nations became extreme. And you'll see a lot of this as we go on. All right, so that gives you a good setup for the conquest of the promised land. Moses didn't get to enter. He had this uh, right-hand man named Joshua. Joshua kind of took the torch, and he led them in the promised land. And Joshua was a great leader. Israel did a good job uh, actually being pretty faithful to the Lord over the time of Joshua. At the end of his book, which is the one that comes right after Deuteronomy, it says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of the Lord which he had done for Israel. So they were pretty faithful. Joshua did a great job leading Israel into the promised land and driving out a bunch of these nations. However, the Lord did say that he was going to drive them out little by little. He said so that the wild beasts wouldn't uh, overwhelm them. So while Joshua had done a great job clearing out a lot of them, the, the job was not completely done by the time that he died. And Israel didn't really have a, a next guy uh, that would come to really take up a strong mantle of leadership after that. Matter of fact, the book of Judges is called that because a judge, is, don't think of a guy with a gavel and a wig or whatever. That, that's not really what it's talking about with judges. It's more like leaders might be an easier term for us to understand. It's a series of different leaders that came to help Israel in times of need in this book. But anyway, after the, the death of Joshua, uh, Israel kind of started to become faithless, started to become lazy in actually doing the job that God told them to do. They didn't completely drive out the nations. Instead, they did start to intermarry with them. They did start to leave some of the rounds. Sometimes they decided, oh, well, we'll just enslave them rather th than destroy them. And so the Lord is not happy with the fact that they have not been obedient, not fully obedient, right? It's not that they weren't completely disobedient. I mean, they'd driven out a lot of the nations. They'd done a lot of what he said. They just didn't do all of it. And in Judges chapter 2, this is what we see. Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land, which I sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you've done? Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. 
When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. So they named that place Bochum, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. So just like us, Israel had problems following God completely. They didn't fully do the job that he had told them to do. And in those verses that we just read there in Judges, there's a few things I want to draw out. And the first one is that God is faithful. Look at that. He says, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. He lived up to his end of the deal. He said he was going to bring them into the promised land. He said that he was going to drive out these nations that were stronger than them. And he did. Israel had no business beating these people that they were beating. He literally stopped the waters of the Jordan River, allowed them to cross. He crumbled the walls of the city of Jericho supernaturally. Uh, he led them out of Egypt with all the 10 plagues. They were fed with manna from heaven, all these kind of things. God had been faithful to his end of the covenant. But just as God had been faithful, we see that Israel was not. The passage we just read said, And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? So despite all the amazing things that God had done, all of his faithfulness, Israel failed on their end of the covenant. They weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. And this is so often us, isn't it? Like, we have a God that is faithful to us, right? Like, you think about all the work that God did in bringing Israel um, out of Egypt. Look at all the work that God has done in bringing us out of sin. You realize that we were completely helpless, slaves to sin, under the curse, like the, the, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. We had earned that. There is nothing that you could do to erase the sin in your past by your own actions. But God delivered us. He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. He has freed us from the power of sin. We're no longer slaves to that. Yet, just like Israel, even though God has done all this work for us, we so often continue to lack obedience. We continue to, to not be faithful even though God has done his end of the part. We, we get lazy about pursuing holiness in our own life. We get lazy about doing the things that he's called us to do. And we see that lack of obedience uh, causes problems, right? The, in the passage that we just read, he says that these people would become snares. And that's exactly what happened to them. And once again, this reminds me of our situation as Christians. We allow sin to live in our life that's a snare to us, even though we have been empowered to defeat it. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. 
The Lord has freed us from the slavery that we were in and sin. And Paul is telling us, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. You don't have to do this anymore. If you're a Christian, not only have you been freed from the curse of sin, but you've been freed from the power that it has over you to enslave you to it. Now, I'm not saying you won't be tempted anymore. We continue to live in the flesh. We continue to struggle with sin. We continue to be tempted. But what we see in this passage is that we are not slaves to it. Okay, Paul says in another place that whenever you're tempted, God will provide a way out. He's given us the ability to choose to say no at this point. Yet oftentimes, just like Israel, even though God gave them the ability to drive out these nations that were stronger than them, they still chose not to at times. They allowed little pockets to survive. And I think that's what we usually do in our lives, right? Like, we, we usually don't look at all of the sinful behavior of our life before we're a Christian and say, I'm going to keep doing everything, right? We drive out most of it, but then we're like, well, I'm going to keep this pocket over here, and, and this tribe over here, I'm going to let them stay, and, and this one over here. But all the rest of it, and then, you know, I'll even like make these guys my slaves, so I'm not going to wipe them out, but like, I'll, I'll kind of control this. Just like what Israel was doing with the inhabitants of the land. Allowing pet sins in your life can blow up into incredibly large problems. Just as the people that Israel left in Canaan blew up to become incredibly large problems for them. When I was uh, back at Bowling Green, I was part of this thing called Pastors in Training. And it was over that time um, that the, the pastors at BG were just trying to get us young guys that were interested in becoming pastors later to really realize a lot of the pressures and, and dangers and difficulties that can come with ministry. And uh, we, we read an article about, um, the article was called Pastors Keep Your Penis in Your Pants, if you're wondering why I'm laughing. But um, the, 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 the reason that the article was written, this guy had just had a pastor friend that committed adultery and uh, I mean, over and over again, you'll see pastors that commit adultery. It's weird, right? Why does that happen? Do you think that these guys just like go into ministry, like looking for women that they can cheat on their wife with? Maybe some women do, but I don't think that's usually what happens. But I, I think that what happens is they allow little sins to live in their life. They allow one wrong thought, and instead of killing it, instead of taking that captive and obedient to Christ, they allow that to just stay up here for a little bit. And, and that thought becomes another thought, and it becomes another thought, and eventually it, start, it becomes um, an inappropriate conversation. And eventually it becomes spending one-on-one -on -one time all the time with the woman that's not your wife, and eventually it becomes adultery. You see, you might think that if you're allowing just some little sin in your life, you're allowing some little bit of greed to stay in your heart, or some little bit of lust, or... Um, some little bit of pride, whatever it may be, that, that it's, it's no big deal. When you see people that fall and fall hard, it always started at the place where you're talking about right there, that little bit that you're allowing to survive in your life. We need to, to be obedient to the Lord, and we need to take every thought captive to Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us, right? Take every, every captive thought to Christ. Every thought captive to Christ, sorry. Um, but you need to realize that we cannot, like Israel, be unfaithful in this and allow these, these nations to survive. We cannot allow sin to continue to reign in our moral bodies. Now, I am not saying that you're going to save yourself by becoming super righteous and taking on all this sin in your life. Remember, Jesus is the one that already paid the penalty for your sin. 
But if you want to experience true life in Christ, if you want to experience obedience, you want to be faithful to the Lord, you want to be free from the pain that sin causes, not just in eternity, but here in this earth, then you need to start taking advantage of the fact that God has freed you from its slavery. So I would ask you, what sins are you allowing to survive in your life right now? What areas is God calling you to obedience that you're resisting to give over to him? I encourage you to think about that and today make a commitment that you're not going to continue in that disobedience. Now the passage that we read from Judges says that after the angel of the Lord confronted Israel about their sin, that they sacrificed to the Lord and that they wept. Okay, so the, the weeping symbolizes the fact that Israel realized that what they had done was wrong. They were sorry for it. And maybe that's, that's where some of you are right now and realizing what you've allowed to continue in your life that you shouldn't, that you realize that you're wrong. They wept. And then they also sacrificed. Now, the, the reason the Israelites sacrificed is because God had given them a system where uh, they understood that their sin was costly. And so God had set up a, a sacrificial system with animals that would, uh, so to speak, pay the penalty for their sin as that blood was shed. Now, all of that was symbolic. Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. There's only one person's blood that can take away sins, and that's the sacrifice that God has already provided for us in Jesus Christ. And so I encourage you, if you're in this spot where you're convicted of your sin, you realize that you've been disobedient, then it's okay to weep over it. It's okay to, to realize it's wrong, but also, like, what an awesome God. He's already provided the sacrifice for us. So we don't need to go out back and slaughter a bull. He's already slaughtered his son for us. What you need to do is claim that. You need to thank him for that. If you've never uh, put your faith in Jesus Christ, I want you to realize that he's giving you the opportunity to do that right now. That He's inviting you to be forgiven of your sin. He's inviting you out of slavery of that. And to be able to come and to be united with him through the blood of his son. So I just want to ask you, man, what would your life look like if you do that? What would your life look like if you start to give your full obedience to the Lord? What would this church look like? Just even right here, this room, 150, 200 people, whatever, are in here right now, giving full obedience to the Lord. How would that change this campus? How would that change the world in years to come? I don't know. I, I, I hope that I get to know, though. I hope that I get to know what that will look like. So let's pray, and uh, the band can come back up. God, uh, we just love you. Thank you so much um, that you love us, that you have provided the sacrifice to your son Jesus for us so that in our disobedience, there is forgiveness. God, I thank you for that, that passage we read in Romans where Paul talks about um, that, that we're saved by grace, that we're not under the law anymore, but at the same time, we're not going to use the fact that we're saved by grace to allow sin to continue to reign in our bodies. We've died to it. God, I thank you for freeing us from that slavery. Lord, I pray that you would help us to know that you are close. God, let us experience the power of your spirit in our lives. God, I pray that um, you, you would show us the areas where we're being disobedient and that you would give us the courage to sacrifice what we need to sacrifice where we're not being obedient, Lord, that you give us the courage to stop doing something that we shouldn't be doing or that you give us the courage to start doing something that we should be doing, God. And I pray that just as Paul said in Romans 6, that we would become obedient from the heart, 
Lord, I ask that, that our obedience to you would not be something that comes uh, out of guilt and out of shame, but God, that we would have a joyful obedience from the heart because we know that you're good. God, we're about to sing about that right now, that, that you're good, that we trust you, and, and that we want to follow you, Lord. We thank you that you're good. We thank you that, that you are a God of grace, that you are a God of great patience, Lord, and we know that you are also a God of great judgment and great justice. God, I thank you for, for, for pouring out your wrath on the Son that we could be forgiven through faith in him. God, we love you so much. We want our praises to be honoring to you, not just in this time that we sing, but in our lives as we live them each day. We love you, Lord, and we lift this up in your son's awesome name. Amen.